Okay, good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Thanks for being here. So we're going to uh, let's begin with some prayer first, and then we'll get into this evening's teachings. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Father God, we thank you for your love for us and for the mercy you show us through the cross of your Son. St. Paul, your servant, said that the gospel, the good news, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. So tonight, Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts to the gospel and the power of the gospel, uh, that faith would be ignited in our hearts in a new and fresh way as we hear your word regarding all that you've done for us to be able to have mercy to us, forgive our sin, and bring about a change of heart, a new way of living within us. So Lord, open the word of God to us tonight. We ask you, open the eyes of our heart to see in fresh new ways your word to us. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so tonight uh, we have two separate teachings, but but they both will piggyback off of one another. The first is uh, on Saved by Grace with the acronym GRACE, G-R-A-C-E. Take a look at what that word uh, has for us. And then the second part of the teaching, we're actually looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 28, looking at what does it mean justification by faith, which is such a key aspect of of understanding for us as Christians. So Pat's going to have the first teaching on Saved by Grace. Tonight you may hear some uh, teenagers uh, going upstairs, so if you do so, it's part of the youth ministry. <laughs> okay, so. Thank you. Countdown to my surgery. November 7th. So please keep me in prayer. I'll be glad to get it behind me. I feel like I've done so much to prepare for it. It's like, come on, let's just get to it, you know? Um, so hi, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Hi. Uh, everybody have a good day? I tried to vote today. I'm in Baltimore County. Today was the first day. It was a two-and-a-half-hour wait. I didn't have time to wait. So, I mean, it was... I've never seen anything like it, and I've never missed a, an election, and I've never seen anything like this. It was amazing. I mean, the, there was no place to park. People were parked up on the lawn. They were through the building, out the door, and around the corner of the building. I mean, so tomorrow I'm going to do it again because I'll be having surgery the day, you know, I can't do it that day. So, so y'all planning on voting, right? That's a good thing. That's good. Okay, Okay. so as Father Dale said, we're talking about grace tonight. And in Psalm 145, verse 8, um, the scripture says that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. It says, slow to anger and rich in love. So, oftentimes, oftentimes in our culture, we hear things like, this just sounds too good to be true. You often hear that? Uh, and and sometimes too when when we're when we're doing a Bible study or things about the Lord we just think to her we might not say it you know but we might think I don't know about that that just sounds too good to be true or um, when we hear about something like grace being um, you know unmerited favor and something that the Lord gives us we might say well we have to do things the old-fashioned way we need to earn it and we know that grace is not something that we earn or even can earn or need to earn. And we'll be talking about that. Or you might hear, 
no such thing as a free lunch. You ever hear that one? Um, or no gain, no pain. That's good for the gym. And then uh, God helps those who help themselves. That's a biggie. That was my mother was big on that one. She, I heard that a lot growing up. Any of you ever hear that growing up? You heard that? It must have been that time, that that generation. So everything about the American way of life teaches us that you get what you earn in life. That there is no free lunch. That you make your bed and then you lay in it. In America, we are very aware of the values of competition and winning. And we know what it means to work hard and use that elbow grease. We value effort. We tell people you get what you deserve in life. And if you want to make something of your life, it's up to you. If it's to be, it's up to you. So that's kind of like a little bit of an overview of how most people, most people in our culture, you know, think. And so when we introduce the whole idea of grace being something that you don't earn, you don't do good works to get, that it's something that out of his love for all of us, he gives us freely and graciously, that can sometimes be hard to comprehend. Um, or like, how do we get eternal life? How do we go to heaven? And we learn through the scriptures that it's through grace. It's through grace. Many of you may have heard growing up or in school that it's through your good works. You know, you do this, this, and this, and you get to heaven. This is how you earn it. This is how you... You earn the, the grace that merits you eternal life. So we're going to be looking at biblical definitions tonight of grace. Hopefully we'll all learn and have a different vision, perhaps. Maybe we already have this vision, and if so, that's great. Um, so you can help with the conversations around the table. But if not, um, you know, it, it may give us a, a deeper insight, a more scriptural insight as to just what it means. So as Father Dale said, we'll use the acronym. So let, let's just start with G. So you have your paper there, and you're going to fill in G, God's gift to me. Grace is God's gift to me. Now, you know, a gift isn't something that um, somebody has to give you. It isn't something that you earn, but it's something that, that, that someone who loves you or who is a close to you, who is a good friend of yours, who wants to celebrate your life for your birthday, or celebrate Christmas with you, or maybe just a, a just-because gift, you know? Um, they're the best. You know, no special reason, but just because I love you, just because you're here, you know, they give us, they give us a gift. God does that, too. He does that. He gives us gifts, just-because gifts. Just because we're made in his image and likeness. Just because he loves us. Just because he took on the form of man and walked the earth. Experienced everything we experience except for sin. Just because. And just because he died on the cross for you and for me. And as we've heard through different teachings, if you were, just you, just one of you, or the only person here on earth, Jesus would have done the same thing. He would have 
he would have been born and he would have suffered and he would have died on the cross and rose again just for you, just because. Now in Romans 3.24, and we're going to be hearing more about what Romans has to say about this, it tells us this, all of us need to be made right with God by his grace, which is a what? A free gift, amen, through Jesus Christ. It's a free gift through Jesus Christ. I know many of us might feel, well, we understand grace. We know about grace. We're saved by grace. You've known that, I'm sure, for many years. But we've discovered that even many Christians, although they know that they're saved by grace, sometimes don't act like it. In fact, they spend most of their life thinking and acting like we're saved by works. Can anybody relate to that? Like, saved by works. Well, if I do this and I do that, that's going to make God happy, and then I'm in good standing. You know, and we kind of take that on. You know, and then when we hear all this free gift business, sometimes that can be hard to comprehend and understand. Um, for many of us, even though... We know we're saved by grace and that doing good works is not our ticket. It's not the ticket into heaven. Our entire life is built on pleasing God and trying to be perfect. The whole idea, it isn't that we don't want to please God. It isn't that we don't want to strive, you know, to be the best person we can be, to be the best man, to be the best woman we can be. But what I grasped from this is that coming to know the Lord, coming to know Jesus, not just knowing about him up here, but really knowing him, like you know a good friend, you know, like somebody that you share your life with, coming to know him, we, our love becomes personal, our love becomes intimate, our love becomes passionate, that we want to please him. Not that we feel we have to. Not that we feel, well, that's my way into heaven. Uh, but because, you know, you know how it is when some, you think about somebody in your life that you love a whole lot. And so what do you want to do? You want to make them happy, don't you? You want to please them, not because you have to, not because you're this codependent, reliant person, this needy person, but because you love that person and you want to make them happy. And you want to be happy together, and you want to you want to know one another more intimately and deeply, and 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 share that passionate love. And so that's the same way it is with Jesus. He doesn't just want us to know a lot of facts and figures. He doesn't want us just to be able to quote chapter and verse. All those things are great, but that's not really where it's at, is it? It's it's to have that relationship. It's to be able to talk to him like you talk to the person closest to you in your life. It's, it's, it's to love and to know that, that you're being loved. So that's what we're looking at. That's where we're trying to move, where we're trying to move to as far as that's concerned. Anybody have any thoughts or as I'm sharing this, want to say anything that I'm, I might need to clarify? It was really clear, huh? Clear as mud, twice as thick? Okay. Okay, R. Let's look at R. How is grace received? 
It's received by faith. Now, what is faith? Some people think faith is, well, I'm Catholic. It's my Catholic faith. It's my Catholic tradition. That's not what we're talking about here. That's your religion. Your faith is your faith is your belief in who God is, your belief in the Trinity, your belief in that Jesus did come, was born, died, rose again for you. That's, that's our faith. Faith is believing in those things we have not yet seen. That's what faith is. If you want to learn more about faith, go to Hebrews. Hebrews teaches us a lot. The book of Hebrews teaches us a lot about faith. And it's, you know, we haven't seen it yet. We might not feel it, but you believe it. You make a decision to believe it. It's not a feeling. You make a decision to believe it just because that's what the Lord tells us. That's, that's what his word tells us. That's what the scriptures tell us. So we see under R, received by faith. And Ephesians says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is, again, the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So it's not like, well, you can say, well, well, gee, you know, I, I never, never um, disobey any of the commandments. You know, I, I, I tithe. I help other people. You know, I'm a really good person. And... Um, you know, so I know I'm saved because look at look at my look at all my list of accomplishments of, of my good deeds that I've done. And you know, I know personally, I have to say that um, I was taught that as I grew up uh, in twelve years in Catholic school. I was taught how important your good works were and how if you wanted to get to heaven you gotta do those good works. Um, and it was only, you know, as I grew older and started to mature and mature in my faith and come to know, not just know about Jesus, but really come to know him, um, that I realized that that wasn't true. And that wasn't certainly the complete truth. But this is what we hear in the scriptures is the complete truth. It's nothing that you work for. It's nothing that you earn. It's nothing that, you know, the Lord's not keeping account of all you know, his looking into your heart, his looking at your intentions, his looking at your faith, at your at your belief, and his looking at how what you're really yearning for and working for is to draw closer to him and to come to know him and to be able to talk to him like he's your best friend and, and to trust in him. So in Romans 4.16, people receive God's promise by having faith, by believing in those things we can't see. This happens so the promise can be a free gift. Um, so you might say, well, how do I get that kind of faith? Uh, the scriptures, they talk about the God kind of faith. Um, well, you get that kind of faith by hearing and hearing the word of God. And it tells us that in Hebrews. Faith comes by hearing and hearing. So you don't just hear it once. You don't come to one Bible study or one talk like this and say, well, I heard it, got it, heard it. It's hearing and hearing. So it's an active participation, right, in hearing and hearing it over and over again. So it finally sinks in and clicks within our hearts and within our beings. Okay, let's look at A. A, available to everyone. This gift, this free gift, 
the place that we're talking about tonight isn't just available for a few, to a few. You know, it isn't just uh, available um, to those high up in the church. It isn't just available to the priests and the cardinals and the archbishops. It's not just available to pastors. It's not just available to Catholics. It's not just available to your, um, your born-again people or your evangelical people. It's available to everybody. 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 All of us. You know, whosoever believes, the Bible tells us. And we're the whosoever. All the men and women in the world and children are the whosoevers. We're the whosoevers. So it's available to us. And scripture in Romans says the promise is not only for those people that live under the law of Moses. It is for anyone. Who is it for? Anyone. All right. Anyone who lives with faith, faith, believing what we haven't seen or felt. Who, who lives with the faith like Abraham did. So faith is believing what we haven't yet experienced, what we haven't yet seen. You know, once we do, you know, it's fact to us. It's truth. It's no longer, you know, our faith has moved, you know, to that degree. Everyone, Romans 10, 13 tells us, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, everyone who just calls on the name of Jesus, you might say, well, you know, I don't really know that I'm there. How do I get there? You know, you call in the name of the Lord. Call out the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is authority in the name of Jesus. And when we take that name on ourselves and when we call out to Jesus, whether it's because you're happy because you're overwhelmed when you think, wow, th this, is, this is some gift. And, and, you know, you're really happy and you want to thank him for it. Or maybe you're sad, you know. And um, maybe you're angry with him, you know. And, you know, it's okay to be angry with God sometimes. And I say that because if you think about it as a relationship, as you think about it as a love relationship with the Lord, Anybody in your world, in your life, that you love, sometimes you get angry with. You know, don't you? And when you get angry with somebody, don't you tell them? You know, I, I'm really, I don't like that. I, because if you don't, know, what happens? It builds up, it builds up, it builds up, and then it comes to be a big problem. So sometimes things happen that we don't understand. There are some things that are mysteries, some things we don't know why. But our human nature drives us to want to know why want to know the answers, particularly about the things that are really important in our life, like life and death. And so when we don't get those answers, sometimes we get angry. And so what do we need to do? Well, we need to cry out to him. We need to say, I don't understand. I'm angry. I don't understand what you did. And it's okay to do that. Why is it okay? Because you're his sons and his daughters, and, he, and he's your father. And when you're in that kind of a relationship, you can share who you are, and you can share your joys, and you can share your anger, you know, and he's still going to love you and embrace you and offer you all his free gifts. Okay, C, grace comes through Christ. So, John 1.17 says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Many people, in Romans 5.15, have received God's gift of life by the grace of just one man, and that's Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Many don't, oh, here we go, don't treat the grace of God as meaningless. This is Galatians 2.21. For if we could be saved by keeping the law, then there would be no need for Christ to die. So I think what it's saying there is if, if we could be saved by our good works, by making up that list of good things that we do, you know, then there, would have, there wouldn't have been a need for Jesus to take on the form of man and, and to suffer and die and, and rise again for us. But because we can't do that, we're unable to do that. That's why Jesus did that for us. And again, it's the um, unmerited favor. I love that. that personally, I like that. That's a definition that kind of I stick to and cling to. Unmerited means you don't deserve it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You can't do anything to deserve it. And it's favor. It's just something that's just handed to you by the Lord. It's something that he gives you because, not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Who you are. Who you are to him. Because you're his sons and daughters. And because he died for you. And because he loves you. He loves you. And he wants you to have all the fruit of his Holy Spirit. You know, in Galatians 5.22, it talks to us about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It says that, you know, when we have the Holy Spirit within us, that it's like if you plant a tree in your yard, a certain, if, you, if you plant an apple tree, the fruit on that tree that's planted is going to be apples, of course. So the fruit of the Holy Spirit, because he's in our hearts, would be things like love and a, a capacity and ability to love, kindness, patience, self-control, all of these things, mildness, meekness, those qualities are called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And because we know that we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's always calling us to deepen our relationship with him, to come to know him more, to, to, to really know more about the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are here for us today and viable for us today and, can, and are really important to use in, in Christian gatherings, Christian community, that fruit that I just mentioned is part of each and every one of us and is, part of, is meant to be part of our lives and part of our, part of our personalities. So, letter E. It is extended through eternity. It's extended through eternity. That means it doesn't just wane away. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So eternal life, that means when we pass from this earth, and come before the Lord. You know, the scripture tells us when we're absent to the body, when our souls are absent to the body, we're present to the Lord. Absent to the body, present to the Lord. And we enter into a new life, and that life is called eternal life. 
and it extends this wonderful gift of eternal life is forever. It's not going to end like our earth here. And this just came to me again. I, I think about this often, but most of you know my husband Herb died um, a year ago, September 30th. And um, I was with him. He, he was at uh, Gilcrest Hospice, and we were in bed together, and um, his breathing changed and so forth. And, uh, and I, I knew what, what was happening, you know, and um, kept talking to him and praying with him because, you know, you hear hearing is, is the last to go. And, and um, you, know, I, you know, he was in my arms like he was every night. And um, when he stopped breathing, I want to tell you, um, give me goosebumps, uh, there was a presence. There was a pre I've heard people say these kind of things, but, you know, I've never, had never witnessed it myself. But that night at 2.30 in the morning, there was a presence in that room of peace and um, of uh, light. I don't mean a light like this, but there was just, um, there was just a sense of light. That's the best way I can explain it. And, and so peaceful. And Herb was, had this, just such a beautiful look of peace with his countenance, you know. And, um, and I knew, nobody could tell me otherwise. I knew that the Lord had come and taken him home and that he was absent to his body, but that he was in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I had caught a little glimpse of that, being with him um, when the Lord came, you know, to take him. And Herb knew he was going to heaven. He, you know, he had said to me, I know I'm going to heaven, Pat. I know my sins are forgiven. And, and I've told I'm going to get heaven all ready for you, so it'll be ready when you get there. And um, there. He did that our whole 56 years. And um, so that's what he's doing now, getting heaven ready for me. But my, the point I mentioned that this is, uh, is that it was, it was a tangible presence. It wasn't something that you imagine. It isn't something, you, and it wasn't some sensationalism type of thing. It was just gentle. It was quiet. But the environment changed. The atmosphere in that room changed. It was a, it was a dramatic change. And it changed one of, you know, just one of peace and quiet and light and tenderness, you know. And um, for those of us who believe, you know, we know that, that that was the Lord coming to take him home. And we know that the Bible tells us that when we're absent to the body, then we become, we come right into the presence of the Lord. That's grace. That's why he died for us. That's why he wants us to know this free gift of grace that we can experience in our life now, but it will live on. It will live on for all eternity. And for those of you who have loved ones who have gone on to eternity, that's what they're experiencing, that peace, that love, that perfect joy, you know, that, that we cannot comprehend. 
the, the peace and the joy that is incomprehensible. You know, and that's what we will experience when our time comes. And we will be absent to our body, but we'll be present to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm hoping and praying that tonight, you know, will be a turning point in whatever way it needs to be for each one of you. And I'm sure for each one of us, it's very different that we'll be able to, to perhaps think in a different way about this gift of grace, to perhaps look for it in our life and say, oh, yeah, that, that's grace there, right there that I've experienced. Oh, yeah, what about this or that, you know? And that we start to see it as alive and well in our life and know that, you know, as we grow deeper and closer to the Lord and to his Holy Spirit, it will increase and increase while we're here, and we'll be all ready. He's getting us, the Lord's getting all of us ready for heaven. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Okay, so let's... Um Turning your scriptures to Romans chapter 3. This will be the second part of the teaching, um, justification by faith. So take a look at this tonight. So actually, let's take a look at the scripture itself. We'll actually read it. So begin with verse 9. So St. Paul says, What then are we Jews any better off? Uh, he's talking about, uh, again, from last week, he's describing the condition of the world. He's basically saying the Gentiles are in a ridiculous position because of sin, alienated from God. But the Jewish people think that they're better than that. And Paul wants us to say, we're, no, we're not any better than that either. We're all in the same boat, in other words. Okay, so verse, that's what he's referring to. Then he says, no, not at all, for I've already charged that all... Men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul said, Paul is describing the general condition of the human race, both Jew and Greek alike. Then verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sins. We'll talk about what the law means in just a minute. Now, verse 21. So Paul provides now the solution. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 whom God put forth as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. 
It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies who has faith in Jesus. We'll look at all this in a minute. It can sound real dense. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No, by the principle of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay. All right. So there's a lot there. Okay. And so on your outlines, I will kind of fill in the blank again. I thought this was a helpful way to kind of break this open and be manageable for all of us. Okay. So, so what Paul is saying is he is describing for us the solution to the sinful condition of the human race. So number one, he begins first by saying, under the power of sin, under the power of sin, every nation is in bondage to sin and in need of salvation. So, and he says here, Romans 3, 23, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the, um, the Jewish people, they have been lavish with so many blessings they had, they had the covenants, they had the prophets, they had the law, they had great signs and wonders God did to throughout their history. And yet they themselves could not rise above the fallen world. They were just as fallen as everybody else. So in verse 9 in the scripture there, it says, what then are we Jews any better off? So he's anticipating the argument from the Jewish people. It says, hey, we have the covenant. We have Abraham. We have Moses. We have the prophets. We have all those folks. And Paul is saying, you're no better off than the Gentiles are. We're all in this same boat together. He, and then um, the verses that he's quoting from there, actually verses uh, uh, 10 through 18, is summed up in Isaiah 59 on your sheet, your outline here. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts of, are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they know not, and they're, they're, there's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one goes in them, knows peace. So Paul is describing the condition of the human heart for Jew and Gentile alike. So in other words, sin has taken hold even of the covenant people and has made them just like the rest of the world. So even though they've had so much given to them, they're not in their heart any different than the Gentiles would be. So look at the passage of Scripture again, verse um, 9. Paul says, uh, um, says, What then are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for I've already charged that all men both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin. The word for sin means missing the mark. It means failure. It means offense, offense towards God. It means to take a wrong course. It means wrongdoing. So in other words, Paul is saying that the nature of sin for the Jew and the Gentile alike is we've taken a wrong course. We've missed the mark. The mark is the glory of God, is serving him totally with complete obedience and trust of him. Verse 12, if you look at verse 12, it says, No one does good, not even one. The word for good here is kindness. So here Paul is saying that even in our acts of what we think are good, you know, he's saying there's a duplicity about us. So no one is doing, uh, uh, no one's acting in a way 
that is completely self-giving to another. That's what he's saying. And then verse 18, he says here, there's no fear of God before their eyes, which means there's no reverence of God. So then, so Paul describes the nature of sin throughout the entire human race. Um, and in terms of, now that's not to take away goodness of people's hearts, things that they do, um, aspirations that are noble, virtues that, 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 that may be consistent with the human race. He's saying that in the heart of hearts, there's something missing in our deep within us that we really don't know about a reverence to God in which we're totally given over to him and totally serving him with all that we are, you know, is what he's saying. So he's saying the human race has missed that mark. Um, so let me give you an example. Uh, God created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. Okay. Create Adam and Eve image and likeness means they were, they were created perfectly like God is perfect. Okay. And then their response to him was to be, to be consistently perfect in love, trust, obedience to God. Um, that's the way they were made. They were given a free will. With their free will, they were to express their love for God at every thought, word, and deed in their life, totally orientated towards God in trust and obedience. Of course, we know that at one point in the dawn of human history, they chose not to do that. They believed a lie about God, that he was not trustworthy, that, you, that, that God was holding out on them, and therefore they chose to become suspicious of a relationship that they had no facts or evidence that God was holding out on them at all. They believed a lie about the nature of God, that he was not trustworthy. So at that point, the image of God as a father to them, which they had always known, departed from their heart. And they then became at odds with him, suspicious of him, distrustful of him. And that's how sin entered the picture for them. And that's what we mean by original sin. And that's what Paul is saying affects the whole human race. Okay, so number two on your outline, knowledge of sin, knowledge of sin by the Torah defines good and evil, but has no power to change one's life. So uh, let's look at Hebrews there on your outline. For since the law has has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. If the worshipers had once been cleansed, they would no longer have any consequences of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. Paul is saying, essentially, that the law had been given by God to Moses to give to the people was holy, but had no power to change the human heart. Okay, so the law was given to be a guide or a moral teacher to the Hebrew people. So let's take a look back at Romans 3, where Paul talks about the law. Um, If you look at verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So what was the law? What was it? It's the Torah. And the Torah was the first five books of the Old Testament. And the first five books of the Old Testament contained the Ten Commandments, 
which we are familiar with, no. But it also consisted of ceremonial laws, um, juridical commandments. It consists of uh, ritual works or Sabbath observances, feast day observances. All this was considered the law. All that, uh, the Sabbath observances, ritual works, ceremonial works, things like you've heard uh, Jesus talk about, like the Pharisees say that before you eat, you had to wash your hands because you may have touched something unclean, okay? Or um, to touch a Gentile was considered to be unclean. To touch a leper was considered to be unclean. Um, to associate with Gentiles was considered unclean. That's all the law that Paul was, that was talked about by the Pharisees. Okay, what Paul is saying here is that law has no power to save you or me, has no power to change our hearts. So all is, what it does for us, it defines what good and evil is, but it doesn't have the power to change the heart so that we can live in a way that chooses the good. So Sabbath observances, ritual works of the Torah, all that was made obsolete by the new covenant. And that's what Hebrews is saying here. Again, let's look at it. Hebrews. It says, since the law was but a shadow, so it was a teacher. It was pointing us in the direction of something, but it was not the thing, okay, because it didn't have the power of changes. So what was part of the law? Sacrifices were offered year after year to atone for the sins of the people. But those sacrifices would never have stopped until the Messiah came. They would never have stopped. So Orthodox Judaism today would still be offering those sacrifices, for example. It says here, verse 2, in that Hebrews, otherwise they would, have, they would not have ceased to be offered. So, so in other words, those sacrifices didn't have the power to change any of the worshippers' life. The consciousness of sin was still there. And the sin, the sacrifices were offered year after year until Jesus came. And we'll see that in a minute. Okay, number three. Initial justification takes place in baptism apart from the law. Now the law here is the ceremonial law the juridical commandments, the Sabbath observances, all that. That's the law. The law, however, here does not mean the um, observing like the Ten Commandments, the law. It doesn't ref it's not referring to that at all. So in other words, so what we mean by initial justification, let's take a look at the scripture here, Romans 3 again, and look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So, initial justification then takes place through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's look at Titus on your outline here. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal in the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so we might be justified by his grace and become heirs in hope of eternal life. 
So, in other words, then what Paul is saying is to be justified means to be accepted. We're accepted into his family as sons and daughters by grace as a gift that initially takes place in baptism, apart from the ceremonial law, apart from the Sabbath observances, apart from, uh, you know, uh, the ritual works of the Torah. So when Paul talks about law, that's what he's referring to. So which initial justification? It's that it's the grace of God poured out upon us through his son's death and resurrection that forgives us of our sins and reconciles us to him and makes us part of his family, his sons and daughters. Now, as Catholics, sometimes we hear the word baptism and we think, gee, that's... Um, that's uh, we think of a baby being baptized. That's what we normally think, right? Okay, so and and justification takes place at that point through the waters of baptism, grace given to a child, okay, a baby, as a free gift of the Lord to that child before they ever had had a chance to know anything about Him or earn it, so to speak, or anything. Why did the Lord do that? Because grace is free; it's given as a gift. However, <laughs> this is a big however. Okay, that child is to grow up then hearing the word of God and personally choosing to become a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, renounce Satan and all his works in his life and become a follower of Christ and live a life of trust and obedience in him. And if they didn't do that in their life, then the grace of baptism, the justifying grace given to them remains tied up. And St. Augustine said it this way, that if a person does not grow up in conformity to baptism, he says, then it, the baptism merits them nothing. St. Augustine. Okay. So in other words, I, I, I like to say it this way, we, don't, we can't surf on the waters of baptism all our life long. Okay. At some point, we need to make a decision to say, hey, I want Jesus to be the Lord, the Savior of my life. I want to live for him and have my life conform to his way of life. Okay, we can answer any questions about that afterwards. Okay, let's look at number four. Redemption is freedom purchased for a slave or a prisoner by a ransom price. If you look at verse 24, again, Chapter 3, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption is ransom paid for a person that was a captive, could be a slave or could be a prisoner. So it was a ransom paid for somebody. So it is by the blood sacrifice of Christ then on the cross that our salvation is paid for. So what's what's he paying for here? Okay, what's he paying for? Okay, this is the way St. Thomas Aquinas explained it. Okay, and it was this. God, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and chose to go their own way, God lost from them his trust, his obedience from them. They, you know, He made them to love him, to trust him, to obey him. He made them to be loyal to him, to be faithful to him, to be his to be, in a sense, 
um, his sons and his daughters. He made them in a way that they would live a life of complete dependence on him and and be secure in him. When they sinned, he lost all that from them. He lost their love. He lost their trust. He lost their obedience. He lost their confidence in him. He lost their uh, a son and a daughter, like trusting their father completely. They, he lost all that. But when Jesus came, Jesus gave all that back to the father. He gave back to the father all the love, all the trust, all the obedience, all the loyalty that you and I should have given but didn't. Jesus gave it all back to the Father, and he got more back from his Son than what he lost from you and me. That's what St. Thomas Aquinas called satisfaction, meaning that God got back more from his Son than what he lost. Now, the thing is, Jesus did that all for us. He did that all on our behalf. He did that as the head of the new human race, you and I. So, so in other words, Jesus did all that for us. That's what Paul is talking about here when he talks about a price paid, redemption, what the word redemption means. So just think about that. Think about the awesomeness of Jesus' love where he, on acting in, on our behalf, gave back to the Father everything that the Father lost, but gave it back in a way that was more than what the Father actually lost from us. Because Jesus was a perfect person, human being. He, In his humanity, he gave back totally to the Father perfect obedience, perfect trust, perfect loyalty as a human being. He had to be human to do that. He had to be, he had to be like us in every way but sin. He had to give it back perfectly, otherwise it wouldn't have counted, you know. And he did that, think about that, at every turn in his life, he was making decisions to obey and trust and be loyal to his father. Just think of the temptations in the desert that we hear every uh, first Sunday of Lent. I mean, those temptations, you know, the gospel writers highlight the temptations in the desert, but I'm sure you don't think those temptations just stopped at the desert. You know, 40 days, it was over with, I'm, I'm free, you know. I guess, no, those temptations continued up until the Garden of Gethsemane. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, they, they were Jesus was challenged again with a severity of temptation. But as, the, as a human being, he perfectly, at every step of the way, made a choice to love, trust, and obey his Father, out of love for his Father, and out of love for us. Out of love for us. So in that word redemption, understood in the Christian sense of the word, there's this awesome, tremendous love poured out to us of a person, a human being, Jesus, fully divine, but at the same time very full human, making quality decisions at every step of the way in his life. And at certain points, he was severely challenged by the evil one. Okay. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 5 says, to redeem those who are under the law so he might receive adoption as sons. Well, that's what God was always after. Remember in the garden, he had a son and a daughter, and they and the image of the father was left left them because of their distrust of him and disobedience of him, um, and so but so Jesus's coming was to restore back to us the father's heart, the father's image. So what does he do? He wants to have sons and daughters. Okay, and this separates us from Islam. Uh, um, 
Scott Hahn tells the story that he was uh, going to have a debate was a uh, with a um, Islamic leader, um, and uh, they went to get together and just talk, you know, about the the parameters of the debate and some of the things they would. So they they met for lunch, and uh, Scott, you know, being a, a Christian and a Catholic, just began to talk about uh, God as a father, and his Muslim uh, counterpart held up his hand and said, uh, "Would you please not call God Father?" Well, Scott didn't think anything of it, you know, but he kept on talking. And it was natural for him to talk about God that way. He mentioned God's father again. And, and the Muslim helped us in, please, he says, don't call God father. So now Scott was getting a little bit suspicious of this. So he said, well, why, why don't I can't call God father? He says, because Allah has no sons. He has only servants. If you want to know the distinction between Islam and Christianity, there it is right there. Christianity believes in having sons and daughters, you know, and and being adopted into God's family. And that's why Jesus came, to have sons and daughters. Filled with his spirit. That's why we talk about the Holy Spirit so much, because the Holy Spirit brings home that reality of us being sons and daughters. He witnesses to our spirit that we belong to him, not as servants, but as sons and daughters. We serve him, but we serve from the place of being sons and daughters. From the Catechism of the Church, it says, Christ's whole life is a mystery of redemption. Redemption comes to us above all through the blood of his cross. But this mystery is at work through Christ's entire life. Already in his incarnation, through which by becoming poor, he enriches us with his poverty. In his hidden life, which by his submission atones for our disobedience. In his word, which purifies its hearers. In his healings and exorcisms, by which he took our infirmities and bore our diseases. And his resurrection, by which he justifies us. In other words, the catechism is saying everything Christ did was done out of love for us. It was done out to atone for our sins. It was done out to transform us. It was done out to redeem us. Okay, number five, expiation. That's a fancy word, although Paul uses it here. Okay, uh, it means a, is a sacrifice that wipes away sins. Verse twenty-five says, "Whom God put forth as an expiation by His blood to be received by faith." This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. In the Old Testament, where this comes from, is comes from the Old Testament. They had the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant had a golden lid over it that covered it. That covered that cover was called the mercy seat. So every time the high priest would go in there, he'd sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. It was the blood of animals, basically. And that was to atone for the sins. But they kept on doing it over and over again, so constantly, to atone the word expiate then means that the sins of the people are done away with to restore them to fellowship with the Lord. So what St. Paul is saying is that the blood of Jesus Christ is the blood that atones for our sins and restores us to fellowship. So every sacrament in the Catholic Church, uh, baptism, marriage, holy orders, you know, penance, Eucharist, etc., takes its power from the blood of the cross takes its premise for existing from the blood of the cross. So baptism, we pour water over a baby or an adult, 
in the, you know, in, in the Trinity of love, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, they, so they're justified by his grace. Where does that come from? It comes from the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. It comes from the blood of the Lamb shed for that person. When we, when a person, two people are married, you know, um, that's the sacrament joins a man and a woman together and makes them one. Where does that power come from to make them one? It comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. It comes from his death and resurrection. So all the sacraments take their power from the cross of Jesus Christ. So there be, because grace flows from this atoning, sacrificial act of love by Jesus on the cross. Catechism says this when you're outlined here, the name of the Savior God was invoked only once in the year by the high priest in atonement for the sins of Israel. After he had sprinkled the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies with the sacrificial blood, the mercy seat was the place of God's presence. When Paul, St. Paul speaks of Jesus, who, whom God put forth as an expiation by his blood, he means that in Christ's humanity, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what we meant earlier. St. Thomas called it satisfaction. That meant that in Jesus' humanity, out of love for us, he was making those decisions to obey and trust his Father. And through that was reconciling the world to himself. Okay, lastly, number six, justification by faith is faith that is a gift that moves us towards God. It leads us towards baptism. Yes, justification by faith is faith that is a gift that moves us towards God. It leads us towards baptism. Romans 3 verse 28 says, For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So what's the law here? It's the ceremonial observances. It's the Sabbath feasts and Sabbath observances. It's the sacrifices in the temple daily, sometimes twice a day at least. Um, the, the, the year of at uh, the daily atonement, uh, I'm sorry, the yearly atonement um, of the sin. So all Paul is saying that that we're justified by faith apart from that. Now, what about good works? What about good works? <laughs> okay. Where does that fit into the picture? Um, is this like a uh, you know a free ticket? Okay, Jesus died for me. I accept Jesus as my Savior. I'm in. You know, boom. I'm going to live the rest of the way of my life any way I want. Okay. I think intuitively we know that isn't true. Okay, and we would be suspicious of person who thought that. Uh, so what about good works? Let's take a look here at Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's underline those words, newness of life. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ justifies us not because of we done anything to earn or deserve what he did for us on the cross. It was given as a free gift of love for us, but requires of us to go on to live a newness of life, a transformed life. And that's where, quote, good works come in. I, I prefer to call it works of mercy, both spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Good works doesn't mean simply... Um, helping somebody across the street because they need help because they have packages they're carrying. I mean, that's civil, and that's important to do, okay? It's kindness. But good works means to, to be free of sin in our life, to be free of anger and fear and sensuality and, 
It means to have my temperament transformed by the Spirit of God so that I don't fly off the handle towards my spouse or my children, but rather as time goes on, the anger, the rage is being I've been set free from that by the power of God, the Holy Spirit living in me, so that I can start showing forth things like kindness, so that my words are seasoned with grace and not, you know, cutting or biting, you know. Um, so I'm free of things like gossip and slander and backbiting. Uh, so things like I'm not pursuing what the world says, hey, is the latest trends that you should jump in on because that makes you popular and in, in with everybody else. No, I recognize that those trends may not be compatible with Jesus Christ in his way. So I don't want that, you know, for my life. Uh, so that's what's meant by good works in the scripture. It's meant by a life transformed, a life changed by the Lord. But that's what Paul means by the newness of life here. So, uh, so prayer, for example, is a work, right? I have to get up every morning and pray. That's a work. I mean, you know, uh, it's a, I'm, I, I got to do that. That's I'm working, so to speak. So, but it's important I do that. But I'm motivated to do that because of what Jesus did for me at the cross and the resurrection, because of the life of His Spirit in me. Um, now, here's the catch with all that. Church has said that even in our good works, so to speak, even in our works of kindness and mercy, and you know, and we help the person across the street, you know, and all that that's carrying packages. Even when we do that, it's by grace that we're doing it. Yeah, it's by grace we're doing it. So it's not like saying, hey, I can boast in that. That's my, hey, look at me. You know, I'm doing good works. I got, look, Lord, I got a whole list of good works here. You know, this week they outweighed all my bad works. <laughs> okay. No, even when I do good works, even when I'm showing kindness, even when I'm showing, when I'm praying even, when, even when I'm coming to Mass on Sunday, you know, uh, that's by grace I'm doing that. Now, if that's not a blow to our egos, <laughs> right? But that, see, the point being is the Christian life is moved by grace. That's what they mean by the Holy Spirit living in us. It's the Holy Spirit prompting us to care for that person going across the street and help them out because they have too many packages they're carrying and they can't manage it. You know, it's it's the Holy Spirit that motivates us to to pray, you know, and seek Him. It's the Holy Spirit that says that that checks us when we start to fly off the handle and become angry with somebody and say, okay, yeah, you're right, Lord, I, I shouldn't do that. Or it's the grace that I go to somebody and say, please forgive me for saying that or doing that. You know, It's grace that we're moved by. That's what's meant by the newness of life. Because what's it say in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4? Again, it says that I was buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that I was raised as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, I too might walk in newness of life. That's what's meant by I was buried with him in baptism, I rise with him in, in his resurrection. That language means that it's by grace I am moved in my life. So we feed the poor, clothe the poor, visit the sick. Absolutely, but it's by grace I'm moved to do that. Now, if my life doesn't show forth those things, then it's legitimate to be questioned and say, did you really open your heart up to the saving grace of Christ? Did you really repent of your sins and turn away from them? Did you really, you know, um, did you really follow Christ as your Savior? Are you really following him that way? 
Because if so, our life should be changed as we, as we follow him, as we seek, as we pray, as we listen to his word. These things should work in us in a way that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and say, yes, I want to change that area of my life. Let's look at from the Council of Trent, the very last thing, that, that man by his own efforts and works can never merit the initial grace of justification that makes him a child of God and a member of the new covenant. This grace is an entirely free gift from Jesus Christ conferred in baptism. So initial, let me summarize by saying this, initial faith leads to conversion that leads us to baptism. So if we're an adult and we don't, and we're not a Christian, then, then to hear God's word about what God did for us through his son should lead me to what's called uh, initial faith, which say, hey, I want to be a Christian. And that should lead me to baptism. And then my, I want to live a life in which I'm transformed by the grace of God. So, so I'm will, I want to live a life of the works of mercy, for example. Now, what if you're already baptized? Okay, as a baby, let's say, for example. So initial faith took place in baptism, was given, were justified by the Lord's work in us. It's a free gift to us. But I must say that what happened to me in my baptism, I want to live that way. I want to cooperate with it. I want to submit my life to Christ and be his, be his disciple, be his follower. And I want the power of the Spirit at work in me to change my life. So a person that's a non-Christian has to go through a process in the early church. We call, we call today the RCA. It was called the ancient catechumenate. They heard God's word and they were brought to conversion through that. If you're already baptized... We still have to go through a process of being changed. We have to hear God's word and be changed by it. Hopefully it happens in the families. If it doesn't happen in the families, we have Bible studies and different seminars that we offer to help bring us Catholics who have been baptized into a renewed awakening of our faith that was given to us in baptism. So, Okay, so that's a lot tonight. So we're going to take about uh, 10 minutes in your small groups. Just want to talk talk about the one thing that really impressed you or spoke to you tonight. Okay. Not impressed in the sense of being wowed by it, but mean just spoke to your heart and want to share that with each other.